for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We hope you can join us to celebrate Reformation Day 2021 on October 30th in Louisville, Kentucky. The Mid-America Reformed Baptist Association of Churches invites you to a one-day conference featuring Pastor Sam Waldron, Ron Miller, and Ben Carlson, who will be speaking on Solus Christus, or the Doctrine of Salvation by Christ Alone. To learn how you can attend in person or via live stream, visit marbach.org slash Alone. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. This is a Man of God Network, a podcast of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. For more narrations, go to Puritan Audiobooks. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. One of the things that I like to do is download books, particularly from American church history between 1800 and 1850. And this morning I happened to download something called the American Baptist Magazine and Missionary Intelligencer for the year 1817. And because it's a window on the past, an opportunity to put myself back in time and try to enter in as best as I can to a world, in this case, 204 years ago, I want to read just some excerpts of the various articles that are in this magazine for this year. And I think that you'll find it edifying, enriching, and instructive. We'll start with the very first article, the editorial, to the friends and patrons of the Massachusetts Baptist Missionary Magazine. Encouraged and assisted by your liberal support, the editor has been enabled to complete the fourth volume. He is sensible that to your candor and liberality, he is indebted for the increase in patronage and respectability which the magazine has obtained. To propagate religious intelligence and promote a missionary spirit, were the great objects which first induced the trustees of the Baptist Missionary Society of Massachusetts to propose this periodical work. While these objects have been kept steadily in view, its pages have been occasionally occupied by other subjects, and we'll look at some of those other subjects. And now from the editor's address. At the commencement of this new year, the editors of the American Baptist Magazine take the liberty of tendering their sincere congratulations to the friends and patrons of this periodical work. If we take a retrospect of the past and glance at the prospect before us, we shall see much to encourage and animate us in our exertions for the spread of Christian knowledge. Our most sanguine expectations have, in some respects, been more than realized. The very first article for January of that year was a memoir of Roger Williams, the first American Baptist, minister of the gospel, and first governor of the colony of Rhode Island, which we will skip over to that. There's an article in here on ministerial associations that begins, the pastors of the Baptist churches in Boston and its vicinity, having recently agreed to meet together once in three months, have adopted the following regulations. Each meeting shall be open and closed with prayer. The conversation shall be confined to religious subjects. Each member shall have the privilege of relating the exercises of his own mind or of making such other communications as he may deem important to the society or to the general interests of Zion. 
and the benefits of ministerial intercourse, or we would say an association. There are many subjects in theology concerning which the minister who thinks for himself has a seasons of perplexity and doubt. Many passages of scripture appear dark and intricate, and many occurrences transpire in the church and congregation of which he is a pastor, which leave him in painful suspense as to the course of conduct which he ought to pursue. How desirable under such circumstances that he should be able to unbosom his mind and receive counsel from men of piety, experience, and wisdom. The most happy effects may be anticipated from a disclosure of feelings and sentiments to intelligent and pious friends. Next, we move to letters to the editor, a New Year's present. Dear Sir, among the many tokens of kindness which I have received from the people with whom I have been connected, few have afforded me more real pleasure than the following New Year's present. On the first Sabbath in the year 1816, I preached a discourse from Philippians 2.5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, in which it was my design to set forth the benevolence of Christ as an example for his people, and particularly to urge the duty and importance of missionary exertion. In the course of the sermon, it was observed that very few persons were absolutely unable to do anything for the benefit of the heathen, that those who could contribute only one cent a week would furnish enough at the close of the year to purchase a Bible for a destitute family. Two young lads in the congregation were so much impressed with the remark that they immediately resolved upon making a weekly contribution for the benefit of the heathen. For this purpose, they procured a box with a small aperture in which they agreed to drop an average of three cents per week during the year out of the money which they otherwise might have spent for toys. At the close of the year, they came to me with a box, observing, here is a present for the missionaries. On opening, which I found it to contain $1.56, being just the amount they had proposed to contribute when the year commenced. If half the cents which are spent by men as well as by boys, for that which is of no value, were thus carefully preserved and devoted to support of the gospel, who can estimate how many idolatrous heathen would in this way be furnished with the glad tidings of salvation, and quote yours sincerely. Next in this magazine for January is a review of a book, Christian Baptism, a sermon preached in a chapel in Calcutta on the Lord's Day of September 27, 1812, previous to the administration of the Ordinance of Baptism. And these sermons that comprise this book were as a result of the change of sentiment experienced by Adoniram Judson and Luther Rice and Mrs. Judson with regard to the subject of baptism after their departure from America and the character of missionaries. The story is already well known to most of our readers. The interest which that event has excited in the Christian community attaches an importance to this discourse and cannot fail to secure it a general circulation. The author of this sermon, Adoniram Judson, it will be recollected as the son of a congregational minister in the county of Plymouth State of Massachusetts and was by education and profession a paedobaptist. After he had finished his studies at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, he spent two years in the theological seminary at Andover, where the subject of baptism is said to receive a thorough and impartial investigation. His would not have been a solitary case if during the period of his literary and theological pursuits he had occasionally felt some misgivings of conscience, but we hear of nothing of his doubts with respect to the truth of his former sentiments until after his departure for India. 
On his passage, as he afterwards acknowledged to William Carey, he thought much about the circumstance that he was going to Serampore, where all were Baptists, that he should in all probability have occasion to defend infant sprinkling among them, and that in consequence he set himself to examine into the grounds of paedobaptism. This examination continued about four months, and after much laborious research and painful trial, issued in an entire conviction that it had no foundation in the word of God, and so on. September of 1812. Next in the magazine is a letter from Adoniram Judson to Mr. Ward Rangoon, January 18th, 1816. I am now beginning to translate a little. I am extremely anxious to get some parts of scripture into an intelligible state fit to be read to the Burmans that I meet with. I have nothing yet that I can venture to use. The Portuguese missionaries have left a version of some extracts of scripture not very badly executed in regard to language, but full of Romish errors. This, however, will afford me some assistance. End quote. Adoniram Judson. Mr. Ward returned a letter in June 24th of 1816. Brother Howe has been at Serampore about two months. He has gone down today to Calcutta and expects to sell on Thursday. We have presented the Rangoon mission with a printing press, types, and so on, and should it excite no alarm at that suspicious and capricious government, I hope it may enable them to print the divine word with correctness and dispatch. It was a venture, and I hope like that of Esther's, it will prove a happy one. The following letters are from various female missionary societies that were formed and organized to translate the Bible into Oriental languages, so that the poor heathen may obtain the knowledge of a crucified but now ascended Savior. This society is yet in its infancy, and its funds are very small. So much as we have collected, we cheerfully give to you, and regret it is not in our power to do more. The money received the last year amounts to $10.50. One year only has passed since the establishment of this society. We ask your prayers that a divine blessing may rest on all our feeble endeavors, that this little society may increase and flourish, and that we may add our might to the many hundreds already bestowed by our dear brethren and sisters for the propagation of the precious gospel, end quote. Christiana Hallett, Secretary. Now, the next letter has to deal with Native American tribes in America bringing the gospel to the Indians. Remember, this is the year 1817. The General Committee of the Charleston Association Fund still continue their missionary among the Catawas. How soon the Almighty may open the way for dispensing more largely the gospel of grace to the benighted heathen of the West is known only to himself. The prospect, however, appears increasingly favorable. The Reverend Mr. Elrod, after having visited some of the natives in the northern parts of Ohio, writes, quote, Before I went among them, I sent a big Bible to a man of color who had been taken captive, and was, I understood of note among them, he could read the scriptures. I hope he is a Christian. By him the Indians have obtained some knowledge of the scriptures, so that when I went among them I was received very affectionately. They are the remnants of several different Indian tribes. Their chiefs have all along been friends to America, but are very suspicious. They are a cunning, docile people, and very inquisitive. They came in companies to see me, and let me know by their interpreter that they came to know what that book said and what it meant 
meant, and would ask how the Great Spirit made it, how it was kept ever since he made it, and if white people had not altered it since it was made. They asked all important questions about creation and the fall of man, about the good spirit and the bad spirit, how Jesus Christ was the Son of God and salvation by him, and how he was one with the good spirit, and what effect it would have on their nation if they received this book, end quote. The next letter to the editors of the magazine is called Revivals of Religion in the Churches of the Madison Association in the State of New York. The author of the letter is a Mr. Peck of Casnovia, dated November 22, 1816. Dear Brother, in September the Madison Association met and enjoyed a very pleasant season. The intelligence from the churches was truly animating. Eight churches were added to the association at the present meeting, and it appeared by regular returns that 632 had been added by baptism in the course of the past year. Exclamation point. At the close of the business, a missionary discourse was delivered, and a collection taken for foreign missions amounting to $95.50, besides two gold rings. Deacon Jonathan Olmsted of Hamilton at the same time made a donation of cotton cloth to the amount of $100 estimated at the factory prices. It was truly delightful to see the sacred flame bursting forth with such brilliancy. While writing the above, continues Mr. Peck, the youth of this place, together with the young converts from Pompeii, to the amount of 100, came to make us a visit. I laid aside my pen to attend to them. Some were mourning and crying. What shall we do to be saved? While others were rejoicing and giving praise to God. They spent the afternoon and evening with me. Three of the number found comfort to their souls before they went away. One young man who was in the deepest horror of mine when he left my house, found peace to his soul before he reached home. A more visible display of the power of God I never saw. The blessed work still continues. Hoping your precious life and usefulness may be continued in Zion for a long time to come. I subscribe your brother in the bonds of the precious Savior, John Peck. A letter from a Mr. Cyrus Andrews, one of our missionaries, to the editor of the magazine, quote, I was preparing to fulfill a short appointment from the Hamilton Society when the gracious Lord by his Holy Spirit began his work in the hearts of the dear people in this place. My attention since that time has been taken up and very happily, too, near at home. Ten thousand thanks to the great author of our being who has remembered his holy covenant and has had mercy on his people whom he has chosen. Thus the Lord has favored us with the most remarkable influences of his spirit that I ever witnessed. Since the fourth part of July last, the attention has been general and the consequences which have followed the most happy. The drunkard has forsaken his cup, and the profane man his swearing. The wicked has forsaken his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. The foolish have become wise. The people have met in crowds during the past season, and whole nights have been spent in religious conference. I have baptized 31 of the young converts who have joined our church. Brother Carr of Hamburg baptized some in my absence. Our number has risen from 14 to 56 in the course of the season. The work has taken all classes and distinctions of people. Many of the precious youth are now the followers of Christ. 
Although the people are divided among several denominations, yet it should not abate our joy that souls are converted and God is honored. More than 100 in this and the adjacent settlements have, as we hope, become subjects of this work. I am now from home at Leroy. A glorious work has begun here. The Lord is doing wonders in this part of the country. The solitary places are made glad, and the wilderness blossoms like the rose. End quote. A letter from John Conant of Brandon, Vermont. January 4th writes, quote, A most glorious work of God prevails in this town. It is now increasing and so wonderful in its progress that no one among us ever saw it so great in any place before. We hope for its continuance, end quote. An extract from a letter from the Reverend George Witherall of Coleraine to the editor, January 18th, 1817. Dear Sir, the work of the Lord is still progressing in this place. I have now baptized 64 who have joined the church of which I have the care. I think a number more will soon be added. The above number were baptized within the term of three months. I intend giving you a more particular account of the beginning and progress of this good work when it shall have come to a close. The youth have shared remarkably in this reformation. The last Sabbath in December, our communion presented a scene the most pleasing and affecting. There were upwards of 100 communicants, a majority of whom are young persons. Many of these, as they expressed themselves three months before, were in the broad road to ruin. This, sir, is the Lord's doing and marvelous in our eyes. I cannot close until I inform you of a work that is recently begun in Wilmington, Vermont. It is said to be the most powerful that has ever been seen in that part of God's vineyard. I have been informed by brethren who were at one of their evening meetings that there were 15 hopefully brought into the liberty of the gospel that evening. It is stated that more than 100 have hopefully been born into the kingdom of grace within four weeks. In the other towns I mentioned to you in a former letter, the work appears to be drawn to a close, but they have shared richly in the blessings of special grace. In Barnetston, about 50 miles east of me, the Lord has performed a work to the astonishment of men and angels. There have been not far from 70 added to the Baptist Church, as I have been informed, and about the same number to the Congregational Church. Dear Sir, we have long been praying for this happy era. May we not hope it has already begun. We can say, heaven here, heaven there. Comforts flowing everywhere. Respectfully yours, George Witherell. Now for the March 1817 edition of the American Baptist Magazine and Missionary Intelligencer starts with a memoir of the late Reverend Abraham Booth. This comes from the London Evangelical Magazine. We have seldom, if ever, been called upon to record in this miscellany a departed saint and minister of more sterling worth than the late Reverend Abraham Booth, a verse, as he was, on the prevalence of deep humility to any eulogy on his character, solemnly forbidding anything to be said of him in his funeral discourse. Yet it would be injustice to the God of all grace, who so highly favored and blessed him, not to acknowledge to his glory that plenitude of gifts and graces which was bestowed upon him, that his book, Reign of Grace, which is exemplified in him. For our ability to gratify the wishes of our readers in doing this, we confess ourselves indebted 
indebted chiefly to a short story by the Reverend John Rippon attached to the funeral sermon of the Reverend Mr. Dorr, and to which we gladly refer for more copious particulars than the limits of our biographical pages can admit. Next follows an extract from the introduction of his will. I, Abraham Booth, Protestant dissenting minister in the parish of St. Mary, Whitechapel, London, reflecting on the uncertainty of life, do make this my last will and testament in manner following. Being firmly persuaded that those doctrines which have constituted the grand subject of my public ministry for a long course of years are divine throughs, being deeply sensible that all I have and all I am are the Lord's and entirely at his disposal, and being completely satisfied that his dominion is perfectly wise and righteous, I, in the anticipation of my departing moment, cheerfully commend my immortal spirit into his hands in expectation of everlasting life as a gift of sovereign grace through the mediation of Jesus Christ. And my body I resign to the care of providence in the silent grave with the pleasing hope of its being raised again at the last day in a state of perpetual vigor, beauty, and glory." End quote. The next article is called An Extract of a Letter to a Young Pastor Respecting Public Prayer. A few opening remarks. Recollect that you appear not only as an official professional man, but in the character of a worshiper with your fellow worshipers and the character of a sinner with your fellow sinners. Number two, prepare your heart to seek God. As you would not preach, so neither would you pray without preparation. I would not be understood, however, to advise you to study words beforehand so much as things. Horace's observation will apply here as well as to preaching. The matter being provided, the words will freely follow. Be concerned to breathe the spirit of a supplicant. When Abraham interceded for Sodom, he said, Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak to Jehovah, who am but dust and ashes. Oh, let not Jehovah be angry, and I will speak. Oh, let not Jehovah be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. Genesis 18, 27, 30, and 32. Indulge the emotions of your own mind at the time, whether joyful or sorrowful. You will sometimes expatiate freely in the language of contrition. At other times, your heart may be enlarged with gratitude, and you will naturally abound with praise and thanksgiving. Whatever be the frame of your mind, remember that Jesus is the great intercessor, and that the Spirit also helps our infirmities, Romans 8, verse 16. Dr. Watts' remarks on the assistance of the Spirit in prayer are highly worthy of attention. Number five, a variety of thought and of expression may be happily suggested by a chapter or a psalm read before prayer or by recollecting what you have recently read in private. Wherever you are called to take the lead in public worship, you will find it useful to read before sermon or before prayer a small portion of Holy Writ. Your preaching is but a commentary. Let the people always hear first the text itself. Secondly, I proceed to notice a few things which relate to your creator. Be very sparing, much more than many preachers are, of the name of God, the glorious and fearful name of the great and terrible God. We are all very guilty of great irreverence. Let us watch and pray against this evil in time to come. 
Number two, if you compare what you read in Holy Writ with what you hear in public prayers, you will see perhaps that we are all very defective in adoration. But scriptural views of the divine attributes are evidently adapted at once to humble and to encourage our souls, and the language of adoration borrowed from the recorded prayers of holy men were powerfully impress the minds of many and raise every devout worshiper from earth to the highest heaven. Now moving forward to page 58 of the March edition, an article called The Religious State of Our Country. Remember, this is 1817. Editors. Many of the Friends of Zion in the United States have been highly gratified in perusing the article inserted in number 48 of your useful magazine on the religious state of our country. The representations of Mr. Beecher, Dr. Pearson, and others are a source of much grief and calculated to give foreigners a very erroneous impression relative to the religious state and privileges of our highly favored land. Notwithstanding the melancholy picture which these gentlemen have given, it may be presumed that if any, there is not more than one Christian country which stands so highly elevated in the blessing of religious instructors as our own. It was to be expected that the periodical works in foreign countries would notice these melancholy representations. Accordingly, we find in the Literary Panorama, a periodical work published in London in June last, a lengthy extract from Mr. Beecher's gloomy descriptions. The editors introduce the extract by remarking with respect to this country, quote, We are extremely sorry to observe that morals and religion are reported to be exceedingly defective. The view taken of it by some of the more intelligent among the Americans is unusually perplexing and painful, end quote. We apprehend these gentlemen may yet feel urged in justice to their country to correct the erroneous impressions which their publications have produced. In order to represent the country as deplorably destitute of religious instructors, about 6,000 faithful ministers of the gospel are struck out merely for want of a public education. Why not, with the same propriety, reduce the number of our legislators and judges? Why not indulge in lamentation that we were eight years destitute of a competent administration of government because President Washington had not been blessed with a collegiate education? Neither scripture nor reason make a public education any more indispensable to a minister of the gospel than to a chief magistrate. It is hoped investigator will further investigate this interesting subject in quote. Now under the subject of domestic religious intelligence, revivals of religion, an extract of a letter from Elder Pepper to one of the editors of this magazine. October 19, 1816, Suffield, Connecticut. Reverend and dear sir, in compliance with the request of some of my friends, I proceed to give you the following brief account of the gracious work of God in this place. This work began in the spring of 1815 in the Second Church and progressed gradually through the summer and autumn when it became more general and more powerful. The first instance of conversion was a young woman who, like the rest of her mates, had been very careless and vain. Retiring to rest one evening as she blew out her candle, the thought forcibly struck her mind that God could instantly blow away her breath, and what then would become of her immortal soul? This made a deep and lasting impression upon her mind. 
Sleep almost departed while her convictions continued to increase, and she found neither rest nor peace until she was enabled to resign her all into the hands of her blessed Savior. She related her Christian experience and was baptized on the first Lord's Day in August. This is a memorable day to many. A large and solemn assembly was present on the occasion. And while Christians were constrained to rejoice, some poor sinners were pierced with the arrows of conviction, a goodly number of whom have since given evidence of the death to sin and have in the same place been buried in baptism with their glorious Lord. From this time, the work of God appeared to spread and the number of disciples increased in different parts of the town. But the East Street remained unaffected, and though the gospel was preached there repeatedly, but few of the people could be persuaded to hear it. They seemed generally to be regardless of their welfare and strongly bent on their own ruin. But in the December following, it pleased him, of whom it was once said he must needs go through Samaria, in his glorious majesty and grace, to pass through this place also, where he has abode not two days only, but a number of months, and where his wondrous mercy has been most conspicuously displayed. The scene was now changed. The attention of many was now called up. The interesting realities of eternity were open to their view, and a general inquiry was heard, What must I do to be saved? The work spread through the street for three miles in length, and the greatest part of the young people, together with many heads of families, have become the happy subjects of it. A youth, aged twelve years, who had been a ringleader in vanity among his companions, was early awakened. I visited him in his distress, and when leaving him at a late hour in the evening, he thus addressed me, Do pray for me, for I am such a sinner. I fear there is no mercy for me. He had no rest through the night, but spent it in imploring mercy for his soul. Soon after, he hopefully obtained mercy, and has since been instrumental of good to others in recommending the heavenly stranger to a number of his young friends. About this time an aged man came forward, trembling, and confessed that he had obtained a hope some years before, but had not made it manifest, nor lived accordingly, that he now found himself a stumbling block in the way of others, and felt it his indispensable duty to now leave this ground and move forward in active obedience to the Lord's commands. Thus the aged and the young compose a family of God. Although many of different societies and of different ages and stations in life have shared in this glorious work, yet the greatest number have been from among the youth. To see a large number of young persons from 10 to 20 years old crowding our public assemblies, to hear the precious word or to hear them relating God's gracious dealings with their souls, singing praises and conversing on heavenly things was truly affecting. Nor was it less pleasant to see some who had been valiant soldiers in enemy's camp yielding themselves the willing captives of victorious grace. It was not to be expected that all would be pleased with such a work as this, but no opposition has prevented the friends of Christ from going forward in obedience to his commands. Nor have they turned aside to dispute about sentiments, but have advanced forward in their Christian course with a firm and steady pace, rejoicing abundantly in the advancement of the Redeemer's kingdom and in the salvation of perishing sinners. In a word, although this work has not been very rapid in its progress, 
nor attended with noise and falling down, yet the small, still voice of the all-powerful Jehovah has, we humbly trust, spoken many dead sinners into spiritual life. The number added to this church by baptism is 87. A few have been added to the congregational church, and a large number remain who give evidence of their adoption, some of whom we hope will soon come forward. From your brother in the gospel bonds, Bennett Pepper. Well, that was a short look at the magazine annual for the American Baptist Missionary Magazine for the year 1817. And apparently it came out every odd month. That was just January and March. And as I look into May, you can see an extract of a letter written by Ann Judson, an extract of a letter, May 10th, 1816, to a lady in Beverly. So these were good times. Revivals were going on. Missionary endeavors were such a high priority. I hope this has been entertaining and of edification to you. This is the Narrated Puritan, Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, the Man of God podcast. <laughs>